Welcome to the CJC Weekly Bible Study, where CJC stands for Complete Jesus Christ. If your perspective of Jesus is based only on teachings from the New Testament, then your understanding is incomplete. Regarding what we often call the Old Testament, Jesus himself said, These are the very scriptures that testify about me. So won't you join us today in our study where we esteem the newer and the older testaments alike. I'm your host, Jeff Smith, and currently we're working our way verse by verse through the first book of the Bible, Genesis. Genesis chapter 26, the last time we met, we looked at verses 1 through 6, so we're going to be starting in verse 7 today. Verses 1 through 6, you'll remember the title of that, and you can see I put it on the board behind me as well. The title we had for that one was, Like Father, Like Son, and Blessings, right? And we saw that the blessings that were given to Abraham in chapter 12 were transferred over to Isaac. The torch was passed, so to speak, over to Isaac. So the blessings that God had given, those got transferred, like father, like son, in blessings. Today, it's like father, like son, in mistakes, is the title of today's lesson. Like father, like son, in mistakes, starting at verse 7. I'm going to go ahead and start this one. I usually ask for volunteers to start, but I'm not going to read the whole verse, because I'm going to ask you a question when we get only partway through this verse. Here it is, verse 7. And the men of that place asked about his wife. Whose wife are we talking about? We've Isaac. got Isaac. There you Isaac, go. Exactly. Isaac. And then uh, who's the wife? Rebecca. Good job, Rebecca. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about Isaac. We're talking about Rebecca. Those are our key players in the story today. And the men of that place, where's that place? You have to look at verse 1 for that one. The last word in most of the translations of verse 1. Gerar. Gerar. Good. So we're in Gerar. And the men of that place, the men of Gerar, asked about Isaac's wife. And he said, who's the he? Isaac. Isaac. And he said, she is my sister. Now, right now, I want to stop and ask you. A little trick you learned from Papa. A little trick you learned from Papa is exactly right. We've seen this before, haven't we? We've seen this with Abraham and Sarah. Yes, we have. Yes, indeed. Here we go again, right? Or, oh no, as the case might be, if you're remembering what happened in those earlier stories. Those are found in Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12, right after the call of God in Abraham's life. The second half of that chapter, they go down to Egypt. (laughs) All right? And there's this whole, she's my sister. In fact, let's turn there. Let's look at some of the highlights of that. I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 12, starting in verse 10. Somebody mind reading in verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to dwell there, for the famine was severe in the land. Excellent job. So we had a famine. All right? That was the reason for the move. And then verse 11. Somebody mind reading verse 11. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarah, his wife, I know that you are a woman, beautiful in appearance. And I should probably ask verse 12 as well. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. And then his solution in verse 13? Say you're my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. Excellent. Thank you, Ron. So here we have kind of the template, right? The die is cast here. And going to Genesis chapter 20 now. Genesis chapter 20. Somebody mind reading verse 1 and 2 of Genesis chapter 20. And Abraham journeyed from there to the south, and dwelt between Kadesh and Shur, and stayed in Gerar. Now Abraham said to Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. Excellent. Thank you, Gabriella. So here we have two times that Abraham engaged in this behavior. Two times where he goes to a foreign place 
And he concocts this scheme where, hey, you're so beautiful, I'm afraid they're going to kill me. So let's concoct this plan that we'll just claim that you're my sister, right? Because the idea was, if we go to this place and they find out that we're husband and wife, and if they want you bad enough, you have to off the husband, right? You have to end the marriage so that you can take the wife. So how do you end the marriage? Well, let's just set an ambush and kill the guy, and we'll take his wife. But if we claim we're brother or sister, they don't have to kill me, but they'll have to bargain with me, right? And we saw some of that bargaining going on when Abraham sent his unnamed servant over to get a bride for his son Isaac. And what happens? That unnamed servant goes and bargains with Laban, the brother of Rebekah, to bring back Rebekah. So there was a bargaining that was anticipated would happen with a brother, but you don't do that with a husband. You don't bargain with the husband. Hey, I want your wife. Uh, you know, what's the price? I got camels. I got sheep. You know, <laughs> let's talk a deal here. And no, you don't do that when it's husband and wife. You can't bargain the wife from the husband, but you can from a brother. So the thought was probably they engaged in this, so it would buy them some time. And if things got too hot, they could say, you know what? Pack your bags. We're leaving in the middle of the night because <laughs> uh, we don't want to be here when, you know, tomorrow's the meeting when we're going to negotiate you away because everything's going to be exposed by then. That type of thing. But you remember in Abraham's situation, she was taken both times. Sarah was taken both times. In the first story in Genesis chapter 12, she was taken, ends up in Pharaoh's uh, household. In the second time, she ends up in Abimelech's household. All right. So it didn't really work out well if, if your idea was flee. He got to live. But they didn't get to flee, all right? So the plan was, was not foolproof. And you remember we looked at it that time going down to Egypt. There wasn't a whole lot of mention in the Bible about him praying to God. It wasn't Abraham going, dear God, should we go to Egypt? Yes? Okay, then we're going to Egypt. That was devoid in the story. You didn't find that in the story. God didn't seem to be speaking. Abraham didn't seem to be asking for any word or direction, all right? And similar situation in that story with Gerar. God ends up speaking to Abimelech and Gerar in the Genesis chapter 20 story. And, and same as he did for Pharaoh, basically said, this is wrong and I'm going to intervene unless you guys make it right. All right. So God had to step in and fix things, but it didn't sound like Abraham was seeking God's direction beforehand. So here we are, we're over in Genesis chapter 26 and we're seeing a repeat of that same kind of thing, only this time it's with his son, it's with Isaac. This is the first time Isaac's engaging in this, and I'll spare you and say that this is the last time we're going to have to see the she's my sister claim, all right? We've seen it twice with Abraham, we're seeing it once here with Isaac, and phew, we get to be done with it, you know, for at least these people in these stories as we're moving through the book of Genesis, all right? So we looked at the verse there, starting with verse 7, and the men of that place asked him about his wife, and he said, she is my sister, and he gives the reason. For he was afraid to say she is my wife because he thought, lest the men of the place should kill me for Rebekah, because she is beautiful to behold. Here's something else I noticed, too. Abraham, he's married a beautiful woman, right? And her beauty seems to go for years and years and years. Isaac's married a beautiful woman. She's at least 20 years older than when we met her. When we met her, you remember the unnamed servant and was praying to God, Dear God, I pray that you would send just the perfect person to come and end up being the bride that's going to marry my master's son, Isaac. And almost before he's done speaking... This beautiful, she's described as beautiful, this beautiful woman comes to the well. It's Rebecca, and long story short, she ends up marrying Isaac. So Abraham has a beautiful woman. Isaac has a beautiful woman. It seems if you want a beautiful woman, you got to go to Mesopotamia, or you got to go Ur of the Chaldees to find yourself a beautiful woman. Apparently, so far, that's the pattern. Uh, but anyway, she's beautiful, just as her mother-in-law was beautiful. And so much so that Isaac is concerned that they're going to probably kill me to try to get you as a wife. Verse 8, now it came to pass when he had been there a long time... It doesn't say any years. It just says in generalities, right? 
Is it a short time? No, it's a long time, right? When they had been there a long time. They've been there a long time. It sounds like his concerns about, you know, they might kill me, don't seem to have been very well-founded, right? I mean, because if you're in a place where you think people might kill you, do you live there for a long time? I mean, I guess if there's no other choices and that's the only place for food, maybe. And that is their situation. There is a famine. In verse 1, we find out this is a famine. And every once in a while, you might run across a commentary on this section. They might say, you know what? We really believe that this story is kind of a merging of stories. It's maybe not to be uh, differentiated from the ones with Abraham. You know, maybe they were all just one story and they got verbalized in three different traditions. And this is what we came up with. But the writer makes it clear in verse one. No, that's not the case. In verse one, it says there was a famine in the land besides the first famine that was in the days of Abraham. So the writer is making it clear this happened again. (laughs) All right. This is not just a retelling of the original story with Abraham. This has actually happened to Isaac, too. All right. But here in this situation, so there is a famine. But for all intents and purposes, do you live somewhere a long time if your life is in danger? It's perhaps suggesting that the reason they're living there a long time is maybe because their life wasn't as much in danger as he might have been concerned about. All right. Uh, Because he thought, lest the men of that place should kill me for Rebekah, because she is beautiful to behold. Verse 8, now it came to pass when they had been there a long time, that Abimelech king of the Philistines, Abimelech king of the Philistines, you remember we looked at this last time we met. This is a different Abimelech than the one that was dealing with Abraham. Many, many years have passed. This is very unlikely to be the same Abimelech, that most likely Abimelech is not a proper name as much as a title for the throne, just as in Egypt they had Pharaoh, 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 Pharaoh. Here you have Abimelech, 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 Abimelech. Okay. All right, so here we have in verse 8, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked through a window and saw, and there was Isaac. My version says after that, showing endearment to Rebecca, his wife. <laughs> showing endearment. Anybody else have a different translation? Laughing with. All right. And the reason your version would have laughing with is because I think you have ESV. ESV tries to stick very closely to the original wording. And the original wording is the author, the person who penned these words, inspired by the Holy Spirit, chooses a word that's actually a play on Isaac's name. And what does Isaac's name mean? It means laughter or laughing. All right. So he chooses a name. Yitzhak is in Hebrew is for Isaac. Yitzhak Metzahek. All right, so he's making a play on words. He's making this turn of phrase type of thing. So he's using a word that normally means playing, laughing. It could be translated as sporting with. King James Version has sporting with. All right, so whatever he's doing, he's sporting with her. All right, what are some other translations? Anybody else have anything else? I saw Isaac caressing. Caressing. That sounds like a little more intimate than laughing. Mm-hmm. I'm just uh, observation. I don't know. Uh, any others? Any other translations? So we've got showing endearment to, sporting with, playing with, laughing with, caressing, and New Living Translation, if anybody has that one, I think they have an alternate as fondling. Oh, yeah, right. (laughs) There's a little more than telling a joke. There's a little more than laughing at the punchline of a joke here. All right. In fact, we're going to find out from the next verse that it's clearly some sort of behavior that leads Abimelech to the clear observation and understanding that that can't be brother and sister based on what I'm seeing. So laughing, you can do that with a brother and sister, all right? Caressing, uh, not so much. (laughs) Fondling, no, (laughs) all right? Um, So they're engaged in some sort of behavior. It has sexual overtones to it or maybe playful, sexual playfulness uh, overtones to it, okay? And so this is what he sees. Abimelech is looking out his window, and this is what he sees. He sees this behavior between Isaac and Rebekah. 
Now, it doesn't say where Isaac and Rebekah were. It doesn't even say where Abimelech was. Presumably, he's looking out of his palace, you know, a window in his palace, perhaps, all right, if he's got a fixed structure as a palace. But somehow, he's looking out a window, and Isaac and Rebekah are close enough that not only does he recognize who they are, he recognizes, oh, that's Isaac. Oh, there's Rebecca. That's that brother and sister team that I, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> Something's not right. <laughs> right? He sees them engaging in this type of behavior. We don't know if they're, I don't know, in an alleyway down below his palace window. We don't know if they're in a public park. We don't know if they're over under a date palm. We don't know where they are. We don't know what setting. But whatever they're doing is inappropriate in public. All right. Now, maybe they're not even in public. Maybe they're in their own tent. Maybe they think nobody can see and he happens to be able to see, but they're close enough that he can recognize who they are and he can see this as well. If they're living close enough that they're in a tent and they're living close enough that Abimelech can see, that suggests something about the status of Isaac in that community and his treatment on behalf of the king. All right. And kind of that would make sense, too, because we know that Isaac's been given the estate of his dad. Many, many people, much wealth, much property, many belongings, many sheep and camels, donkeys, and you add to the list, all right? And that perhaps the king is treating Isaac as a fellow sovereign of sorts, but of a different land. And, hey, I understand there's no food in your land. You're welcome to stay over here with us. In fact, I'll give you the property next door to mine. That's a possibility, all right? But it seems to suggest from the way that the story goes that whatever they're engaging in seems to be visible and evident from public view. That's at least reading between the lines there a little bit. All right. And so showing endearment to Rebecca, his wife, we're on to verse 9 here. Then Abimelech called Isaac and said, mine says, quite obviously. <laughs> what are some of the other ones out there? What does ESV say, Ron? Behold. Behold. <laughs> I think, and, and keep going on yours because it even makes it more. Behold, she is your wife. Behold, she is your wife. Mine says, quite obviously, she is your wife. Different English translations will come up with different ways of basically saying, of certainty, this is the case. One of them says, look, surely she is your wife. Another one says, obviously, she is definitely your wife. Another one says, behold, certainly, she is your wife. So clearly, their behavior has got to be more than laughing. All right. It's got to be more than laughing together because you don't make this accusation of somebody who could be a fellow sovereign but of a different land unless you had strong grounds to say that clearly if you knew what I saw, you would agree with me that your relationship is beyond brother and sister here. Do you remember Abraham and Sarah on the second time when it was Abimelech and he said, how could you have said she was your sister? And he says, well, she really actually is. And then he gives a story that it was a half-sister. Right? And so in Abraham's situation, it was kind of a half-truth. It was still deceptive. He still meant to deceive, but it was a half-truth because it really turns out, I guess, Sarah was his half-sister. That's not the case here. If we had a half-truth with Abraham, we got no truth with Isaac. All right. So it looks like the deceit has stepped one further level beyond. All right. By the way, talk just for a moment here about white lies. Anybody ever heard that phrase, white lie? A white lie? Sometimes some people will suggest to you, oh, this is okay because it's a white lie. It's a little lie. It's not a big lie. It's a little lie. It's not intended to be a big deceit, as if there's a different category of lying. I remember the first time I heard the phrase white lie. I was a little kid. I was riding in the passenger seat of my dad's pickup truck. 
my dad and my mom were divorced at the time, and my dad, I think, was taking us back, my sister and I, back to my mom. I think the weekend was over, and we were going back to mom's house, and I think we were running late, if I remember correctly. And I remember that it had something to do with the excuses to why we were running late, all right? And he wanted us to be prepared to support his story of why we were running late, and part of the explanation was, well, it's a white lie. And I remember thinking, what? What is that? (laughs) What is a white lie? It didn't matter to me what it was. I knew by the context my dad was trying to say, it's not a big deal. But even as that little kid that I was, I still recognized this is actually wrong. Right? We still recognize it's actually wrong. If a little kid knows it's wrong, it's wrong. (laughs) All right? I'm going to just go there and say it's it's wrong. So that's the first time I ever ran across a white lie. God doesn't want that kind of behavior in our lives. God wants us to purge that behavior from our lives. But we also need to recognize none of us are perfect yet. We're still working on that process that God, through his spirit, is empowering us to become somebody that he intends for us to be. All right. Then Abimelech called Isaac and said, quite obviously, she is his wife. So how could you say she is my sister? And Isaac said to him, because I said, lest I die on account of her. He actually leaves out the beautiful part. Right To his credit, he leaves out the because he's probably being questioned in her presence. And that can't go well if you end up saying, well, I was afraid I was going to die because she's so beautiful. Because what if Abimelech doesn't agree with you? You know, mm-hmm. what if Abimelech goes, come on, she used to be 20 years ago, but look at her now. You don't want to be there. All right. Mm-hmm. So at least save yourself a little face and don't go there. Don't say that. Uh, but one of the things I want to point out from this verse that we should learn from is we should strive to maintain a good testimony among unbelievers. It's the unbeliever in the story who's holding up truth as being valuable. And it's the hero of the story who ends up, you know, egg on his face because he was untruthful. He was deceitful. It's the Isaac in the story that God is going to do great things through him. It's the Isaac in the story that God has made great promises to him. And it's the Isaac in the story who's deceitful. And it's the Abimelech, the outsider, the unbeliever who calls him on it. And says, you don't even meet the standards that I have and that this community has. And they're not followers of God. We should strive to maintain a reputation in the eyes of the people of the world to the best of our abilities that doesn't bring discredit on God or the name of Christ. All right. When we say, I'm a Christian, and if they know something of our conduct or our behavior that says otherwise, we're soiling, we're contaminating that witness. Just as Isaac contaminated any witness he might have hoped to have had here with Abimelech. Moving on to the next verse, verse 10. And Abimelech said, what is this you have done to us? To us? Who's he talking about? Does he have a mouse in his pocket? (laughs) Who's, Who's the us? What is this you have done to us? One of the people might soon have lain with your wife and you would have brought guilt on us. Again, he uses that word us. He's talking about the community that he's in charge of, that he is over. The king is in charge of this community of people. And he's saying that based on what you told us, claiming to be brother and sister, one of the people, one of my subjects, could have taken you at your word and decided to take Rebecca to have as a wife, thinking they were doing nothing wrong because you said you're brother and sister. And if that person, even unknowingly, would have taken Rebecca to be their wife and had lain with her, that would have brought guilt on the community, even if he didn't know what he was doing was wrong. You catch that? That's what he's appealing to. That's what he's saying is going on here. 
You know, here in our criminal justice system, we have general intent crimes and specific intent crimes, right? If you're a tourist from another land and you come to California and you rent a car and you're driving in that car and you're all alone in that car in almost the far left lane on the freeway and you decide, wow, that lane, one more lane over, just over those double yellow lines, looks like there's hardly anybody in there. I'm going to go over there. And you cross the double yellow lines into what we would call the HOV lane or the high uh, occupancy vehicle lane. If you cross over that line and you don't know you're committing a violation of law, you can still get a ticket. Right? Because it's a general intent crime, meaning in California's way of criminal justice system, you don't have to intend to violate the law to actually be found guilty of the law. It's a general intent crime. Whether you know you're committing a violation of law or not, it's still a violation. That's just an example of a general intent crime. Let me take it one step further. A man comes to a sandwich restaurant and he opens the door and he goes inside and he goes to the cooler where they keep the drinks. And he steals an orange juice in a plastic bottle and runs out of the store. And so the dilemma is, is this person going down for petty theft or is this person going down for burglary? It's petty theft if he didn't go into the store with intent formed, right? If he went into the store, man, I'm thirsty I'm looking for a drinking fountain. Oh, they don't have a drinking fountain. I'm going to steal this orange juice and he leaves. If that's actually the state of his mind, then that would be a petty theft. He didn't go in with the intent to steal the orange juice. He went in with the intent to find a drinking fountain. It wasn't there. He formulated a different plan, took the orange juice and ran. If he says to himself in his intent before even opening the door, I'm going to go in and steal an orange juice or I'm going to go in and steal something to drink, he's formed intent before he goes in. He's now stolen the orange juice and he's left. That's a burglary. Burglary is a specific intent crime. You need to prove that the person intended to commit that crime even before they go in, all right? Whereas with the petty theft, it doesn't matter whether they form the intent outside or inside. They take it, and it's a petty theft. All right, everybody follow me so far? I'm just laying a little bit of background here. Mm -hmm. In God's economy, if you look through the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the middle book is Leviticus. Leviticus, when you open the book of Leviticus and you start to read in Leviticus, you end up finding that the beginning part of Leviticus is about a whole bunch of different offerings that are brought to God. They're offerings prescribed for different occasions, for different reasons, for different seasons, for different needs. But one of the things that you do see is that these offerings cover sins that are committed unintentionally. And you and I, because we're so steeped in our criminal justice system way of thinking, we think, oh, if you don't have intent when you commit a sin, then you're really not guilty, right? We sometimes think that if I commit an offense in God's eyes, it really only counts if I intended to commit that offense, if I meant or if I knew what I was doing was wrong. Because if I didn't know what I was doing was wrong, God won't hold it against me. But that's not the case. The Bible actually says that when we commit an offense in God's eyes, it doesn't matter if we know what we are doing is wrong or not. It's still wrong. And there are behaviors in our society that we've grown accustomed to and that we've gotten used to and we've been sold a bill of goods that we hear people say, oh, this is the way I was born or this is the way it's supposed to be or this just feels right. And if God's word says otherwise, then those are still wrong. Whether you feel like it's wrong or not, they're still wrong. And the provisions that they have in the Old Testament in Leviticus for covering those sins, the sacrifices that you would bring to cover those sins are only for sins that are unintentional. 
But there is one category of sins. It's a trespass offering. And if you commit the sins that are afforded a covering for the trespass offering, then you can be covered. But they're only for stealing and for lying. That's it. Only stealing and lying. Then you might think, well, wait a minute. But what about the people I know? What about maybe even my pattern of conduct or my life? That on Sunday morning they come to church and they come up to the altar and you've seen them go up to the altar several times and they're asking for forgiveness for the way that they lived last night. They made choices last night. They knew those choices were wrong, but they thought to themselves, you know what? Tomorrow morning I'll just ask forgiveness. As if God has to forgive a person. Even if they're living a lifestyle that is continually based on sinful choices, knowing that they're committing those sins, intentional or unintentional, they come on Sunday morning and they go, God, just forgive me, expecting God will. But I think God does things a little bit different than this. And hear me out, all right, because I, I don't want to lose anybody on this. <laughs> all right. When we sin, when we allow ourselves to engage in a pattern of behavior, that leads to sinful choices where we think, oh, I'll just ask for forgiveness on Sunday, Mm -hmm. all right? That that pattern of behavior hardens our hearts. And we can find ourselves getting to a place where we are not grieved anymore about how we're grieving the Holy Spirit. Where it doesn't bother us anymore how we have bothered God. Where we, by a pattern of choices, thinking I'll just ask for forgiveness after, I'll just ask for forgiveness after get to a point where we don't even hear the Spirit whispering to us anymore, trying to lead us out of bad choices. And what happens? We get a hard heart. Pharaoh, in the Exodus story, Pharaoh, it says over and over again, he hardened his heart, he hardened his heart. But there's a transition that happens as you read through that account. And by the time the transition is over, what happens is you see that God, it says God hardened his heart, God hardened his heart. How do you reconcile that? God hardened him in the patterns of choices he was already making. If we make a pattern of choices that hardens our hearts, God will allow us to become hardened in that. And we will end up hardened based on sinning intentionally. We should not get ever comfortable intentionally sinning. I'm just going to do this once because it's just easier for me to just give in this one time. And then I'll ask forgiveness tomorrow or ask forgiveness right after. No, You do that, and you do it at your peril. Living in a pattern of bad choices, not even realizing you've offended God over and over and over again because he has allowed you to harden your heart based on the pattern of choices that you've made. Now you're probably wondering, is there forgiveness then for intentional sins? There is, absolutely. How many of our sins were committed in the future from the perspective of God hanging on the cross? When Jesus hung on the cross and he's dying for my sins... He died a lot earlier than even before I was born. He died for all my sins. They were all still future. Are there still some of my sins still yet future? Yes. Did he die for those still yet future sins? Yes, he did. His death is able to pay for all of those sins. My job, though, is to not get so hard that I don't even seek his forgiveness. My job is to stay close to God, not to see how far can I get away from God and still be a Christian. How much behavior can I still engage in of the ways of the world the way I used to be and still be saved? No, that's the wrong question. The question is, how close can I get to God? Verse 11. So Abimelech charged all his people saying, he who touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Right. So he's made a proclamation. And now that he knows that they are not brother and sister, they're husband and wife. 
He says, he who touches or he who harms or comes against this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. He recognized that the sins that could have been committed in this community, even unintentional sin, even in the eyes of their host of gods, however many gods that they might have had, it was still egregious and would have affected the whole community. And now he's putting a hedge or a protection about them, making a law, if you will, saying nobody touch them because if anybody would have, it would have jeopardized the community. How selfish of Isaac, too. Out of his own desire for self-preservation, he was willing to risk the health of the whole community. And by the way, the wording in that, in verse 11, doesn't it sound like Abimelech is almost treating him like a fellow sovereign of another land? You don't make a proclamation like that unless maybe there's something to be gained by the relationship that you have with this person. And so it sounds like that maybe that's the case here. That if this was just a commoner, you'd probably just say, kill the guy, (laughs) right? So it sounds like there is actually something more going on there. All right, a couple key points that we're looking at from this lesson. Number one, Isaac, he made these decisions based on fear, and we've seen this before. Proverbs 29, 25, it says this, Fear of man will prove to be a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. Making our decisions based on fear, it destroys our trust in God. We need to be careful about making decisions based on fear. We need to be going to God, being reaching out to God in prayer and say, God, what would you have me to do? Not, oh, I need to do this because I'm fearful of what will happen if I don't do this. No, we should be saying, dear God, what should I do? And maybe sometimes it'll go along with what makes sense to us and sometimes it won't. But if we make our decisions based on fear, we're sacrificing our trust in God. Next one, be mindful of how you act in public. The teaching of the Bible, and especially you'll see it in a lot of Paul's letters, is that the New Testament ethic, the biblical ethic, is that we should be living in such a way that we can, we're able to maintain a good testimony in the eyes of unbelievers. All right, And then finally, regarding deliberate sins, refuse to allow yourself to engage in patterns of deliberate sins. All right, Refuse to allow yourself to engage in patterns of deliberate sins. All it does is result in a hardening of your heart. It destroys, it desensitizes your relationship with God. And eventually, if you keep on that path, you're going to be disconnected from God because you're not even going to hear the Holy Spirit whispering to you or even yelling to you. So we need to be careful about engaging in deliberate sins. All right, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the challenges that you've given us today. And we pray, God, that you would take those and help us to remember them. Help it to not be a situation where we walk out the door and the devil, like the seed on the path, the devil comes and and snatches it up before it's able to take root. We pray, Lord, that these seeds would be able to take root in our lives and they'd be able to sprout and grow. We pray, God, that you would help us to be careful not to engage in patterns of deliberate sin. Lord, we thank you for the warning that you've given us, and we pray that uh, your spirit would find ground that's easy to plow and you'd be able to work in our lives in that way, Lord. We pray that you would help us to be mindful of how we behave in public, recognizing that we can bring discredit upon your name, disgrace upon your name, and all sorts of host of bad things by uh, claiming one thing and then showing by a pattern of behavior something contrary to that. Even unbelievers recognize there's a standard of conduct and uh, what's inconsistent with that. And we pray that you would help us, Lord, to not be an excuse for an unbeliever to come to know you. And we also pray, Lord, that you would help us to not make our decisions based on fear. We pray instead that you would help us to reach out to you, call out to you, asking you for direction, asking you for protection, for guidance, for wisdom and discernment, and instead of trusting in our own ways. Lord, we pray that you would help us to internalize the trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. We pray that that would be a life verse for us. We pray that you would also help us to live by the verse that says, fear of man will prove to be a snare. 
but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. Thank you, Lord, for this time. Go with us now. Empower us, Lord, to live lives that are worthy to bear your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Amen.